0: My name is Christian Cisan. I'm a partner here at Lois Law Firm. This is the New York Workers' Compensation webinar series. And what we're gonna discuss today is how to define these claims, how to defend them, and how we go about uh, getting apportionment once we reach permanency. As a reminder, this is a live question and answer session. since I just spent the first two minutes saying empty words into the microphone. uh, Now you can hear me and hopefully put in questions that don't say, please turn the sound on. Great, great. Okay, we do know that there are physical traumatic injuries. There are the most common work accidents in our state. Uh, There are mental injuries as well. Uh, But what we're here to talk about today is the exposure or repetitive trauma cases, right? Uh, We like to term them retirement programs because they actually probably should be falling into the physical traumatic uh, claim. But unless it's a true exposure over time where you can't actually pinpoint where uh, one date occurred that would have resulted in the injury, a lot of these repetitive trauma cases are problematic because one, claimants do not provide notice to the employer in a normal case, right? They don't fill out an incident report saying that over the past 35 years as a carpenter, I now have carpal tunnel syndrome from using a hammer, right? Uh, When that process gets delayed, it's on us to really make sure that we're defending from day one. Death claims uh, are also another type. Uh, They are occupational in the sense that they require the same types of uh, investigation into a defense, but they're not treated uh, under Section uh, 44 or 28. So when can these claims be compensable when they result from the nature of the employment and when they're caused by a distinctive feature of the employment? Those are actual buzzwords used in case law. I like to actually term them as the surroundings and the stuff that you give them to actually work. Right. So if I work in an office building, everything that's part of that office building that I touch or that I use and the surroundings that are uh, encompassing me as I do my uh, job would be part of an occupational claim on the surface. It seems very friendly to claimants. And of course, it's very friendly to claimants. Otherwise, we wouldn't be even talking about this. This is New York workers' compensation law, or as judges like to put it, it's not employers' compensation law. But how do we do this? How do we defend against these claims and show that we are not going to take them lying down? Well, the first part is a statute of limitation defense. The claimant must bring the claim within two years of when the employee knew or should have known and within two years of being disabled, whichever is later, right? So the key here is the new or should have known Uh, Part of the process right you go to trial. uh, It's very very rare that a claimant is going to admit during his or her testimony that yes I knew about this 18 years ago, and I didn't file it until 2019 because I just felt like retiring That is never going to be something that's going to be testified to so we have to actually throw enough stuff at the wall So that the should have known aspect becomes more clear So the first thing we're going to do is look to the medicals, right? When was the condition known to the claimant? Cross-examining the claimant is very, very important. And it's actually coming at them not so aggressively, right? They are someone who is going to be predisposed to wanting to testify to the nature of their injuries, how serious it was, uh, how, how much it has affected their life playing into that is a good strategy as opposed to just knocking and drumming on the same uh, door all the time. And in order to do that, you have to set up the case, right? What are we doing to actually get to a point where they are uh, giving us the info we need, right? It's, are we securing the right medical releases? Are we uh, involved with knowing who their uh, prior treatment uh, was rendered by? Are there medical canvases that could show where the treatment has taken place? Is there surveillance, social media reports that can show what they're doing on a daily basis to get us to that point? Everything leads to a uh, a mix where we can cross-examine the claimant and find out when was this condition known. Once you figure that out, it's a simple math problem of adding two years to the filing of the claim and presenting your statute of limitations defense pursuant to Section 28. Now, if we have to deal with a date of disablement, right, we're getting to the point where we're defending it from a coverage standpoint. There are a few dates we want to be aware of, right? First is the date that the the employee first lost time from work, right? This is your typical retirement program where you're going to see someone uh, essentially retire for reasons unrelated to the accident, but then file a claim saying that, the injuries that he or she is now suffering is that uh, predecessor or that uh, stimulus that required uh, a lost time from work right if we want to push that date out of out of our coverage period we want to make sure that our council is aware of prior policies that are in place uh, coverage searches for the right employers meaning has this employer done businesses at done business at uh, other locations that would require different policies Another thing to look at would be dates of medical diagnoses, right? Uh, when the claimant is diagnosed with a condition, is it two years out or should this have occurred during another carrier's policy period is something we want to take a look at. Actual exposure is also something we want to discuss, right? A lot of instances will involve claimants alleged alleging being exposed to certain uh Toxic substances at work uh, there might be some dangerous activity being performed at or near the location and we want to create uh, an actual timeline that shows when exposure took place and we have had some success looking to different alternative sources of showing when exposure actually took place it's a huge list here uh, on on my right your left I think maybe I, I have the uh, directions mixed up but Quality reports, hygiene reports, sampling. So sometimes uh, OSHA will come on and do some testing uh, at the site to to determine whether a workplace is safe. Any union records, uh, ergonomic or noise studies, all of these things can be used as probative evidence to discuss when actual exposure took place. Now, when we get to the point where exposure, date of disablement, and statute of limitations is either being developed or being uh disregarded maybe it doesn't apply your ime is going to be a good indicator of how you can defend the claim right using those forensics reports to give to the ime using job uh duty details to give to the ime the ime should not only be looking at medicals that are in the board file because the medicals in the board file are actually the ones that the claimant Is using to establish the claim and we see a lot of those IME reports that say well if the history is true then that means causal relationship is conceded and that's a big problem here because we are not in those rooms to give uh, the IME the clear picture of what the case is actually like I always say that if you can discredit the history you're also discrediting the diagnosis if you're discrediting the diagnosis itself you're running an uphill battle because we are not medical doctors ourselves. Complete medical history is also going to be a big part of this. I just mentioned about how we don't wanna use just the medicals in the board file. So how do we do that? We here at Lois always request HIPAAs from day one when we get that file coming in. If the HIPAAs are not being returned, those cases have to be removed from the expedited trial calendar which means that yes generally in an occupational case you might be able to get that irrespective of the hip issue but it adds another layer to the argument to buy time for your investigation so that you can subpoena prior records get them to the ime and give them a more informed basis to provide a causal relationship opinion right and of course once you get there the goal is to show that this condition pre-existed the employment or it arose during prior employment, right? These are not just your garden variety uh, causal relationship versus no causal relationship opinion. There are a lot of factors that go into whether it occurred first and if it did when it occurred. Okay, apportionment Is very difficult, and it's very hard to understand, so I'm going to go through it a little bit more slowly, and I'm assuming that a lot of the questions at the end will be about this particular issue. So please let me know if I didn't go over an issue that you've been having trouble with. This is codified in Section 44. Okay, that's just a baseline of where you want it to look at. That actual statute is very, very short. Uh, So if you have a few seconds after the webinar uh, and you want to get some context, feel free to look it up. It's not one of those long statutes written uh, by someone who just wants to make your life hell. It basically says that the last employer is the one liable, but that employer can seek apportionment from employers and carriers who exposed the employee to the same condition leading to the occupational disease. Now, if this is done perfectly and ideally, then that means we actually know who the prior employers were from a defend from day one standpoint, meaning what resume was the claimant using to apply for the job and what prior employers did he or she say he worked for. Or there's a coverage charts being done prior to the pre-hearing conference, which shows all the possible carriers that could be on the risk. A lot of these issues uh, can be addressed early to protect yourself in the future. right? We don't want to look at apportionment as a way to get out of a claim at all because it's the last employer that's on the risk that's going to ultimately be hit with the present liability. But future liability will result in reimbursement if it's done correctly. Okay, so a few important concepts within apportionment. Uh, First is the date of disablement, right? Uh, Usually it's the first date that the claimant couldn't work or the first date the claimant sought care, but the board has a lot of leeway in determining this, uh, this date. And I like to think of this date as one in which uh, our policy either applies or does not apply for exposure to our employer and uh, Providing benefits to the claimant and also as an anchor right in opposition We talk about a date of contraction Which is when the claimant first registered complaints and this is your prior anchor in relation to the subsequent action, uh, anchor at, at, is, which is date of disablement because all the employers and carriers that are now in between date of contraction and date of disablement could now possibly be brought in To try and uh, get some reimbursement for the liability you may be established with last injuries exposure is is another term of art Uh, it has to do with what we talked about in a prior slide actual exposure but the important thing for this case is to for for this term is to know that only employers who actually exposed the employee to this risk are ones that can be brought on for apportionment right it's It's theoretically possible for someone to do different types of work for the last 20 years, but not all jobs would could have exposed the person to the risk and to the occupational disease. Okay, so how do we get apportionment? Let's start with schedule loss of use cases. This is a little bit easier than a non-schedule occupational claim, so we'll start here. In these cases, you can apportion to work and non-work disability. And it's easier, obviously, for a work-related disability because it's easier to get records and it's easier to find a link between scheduled loss of use from a prior work injury to a prior non-work injury, or or compared to a prior non-work injury. It's actually very similar to apportionment in a, in a scheduled loss of use traumatic accident case. You're more likely to succeed in apportionment in this arena, one, because it's easier, but mostly because Specific traumatic injuries are documented it's very easy to say when something occurred ten years ago, how the claimant's medical looked back then and how it looks now uh, as a way of finding an opinion to determine which uh, which which accident is more responsible for current permanent disability now for non schedule classification cases, usually ones that involve loss of wage earning capacity cases this is a little bit difficult but it's not impossible so don't automatically think that it's you're out uh, of apportionment you can do it it's just a different standard uh, that can seem impossible right the the actual phrase in case law is called disability in a compensation sense so the prior condition must have been symptomatic and disabling prior to the new injury right and a lot of uh industry uh, experts that uh, you'll deal with in this space, will talk about whether the claimant returned to full duty in between both incidents. It's 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 a lot more difficult to establish disability in a compensation sense when they return to work, but it's not impossible because there are diagnostic findings, usually on prior cases, that can compare findings that are present when a claimant returns to work and that are still consistent and relevant and exist existent now in order to for the claimant to pursue a claim uh, in the future okay there are exceptions to apportionment uh, so not every case is going to be uh, pursued uh, from our side in this way a big example is dust diseases That's section 44a uh, that's that statute is actually one sentence so you can actually uh, take a few seconds to read that on your own time it basically excludes dust diseases from uh, apportionment. The other issue is loss of hearing under section 49-BB. It's a little bit of a loophole which actually uh, doesn't let you go about apportionment in the same way. I'm sure there'll be some questions about that and I'll be able to answer them uh, as well. Okay, so uh, we've gone through about uh, 15 minutes of discussing apportionment and occupational diseases, what they are, how to defend them, and how to go after uh, reimbursement. Um, I'm sure that there are some plenty, uh, there are some questions, so I will now see uh, whether this is the case. So the first question I have is from Kathleen, and it's Can you apportion a workers' comp claim to a VFBL or VAWBL claim? And then the answer is yes. Uh, it really depends on the fact pattern within those claims. So it's not the actual claim that. Uh, Will preclude you from apportionment again. It's disablement in the compensation sense and it's really going to be a case-by-case basis so uh, Actually having a claim in particular will help you answer that question because the medical reports and the diagnoses and the testing done within those cases Correlated with whether the claimant lost time from work and had it been a regular workers compensation claim Would it consider him disabled then apportionment would be possible. So thanks Kathleen. And it looks like that's the only question we have here today. So uh, I hope everybody uh, trudged through my early uh, snafu with technology. I did not uh, 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 have a microphone working microphone, but if anybody has questions on how to define an occupational claim, how to defend them and how we pursue apportionment, uh, please feel free to contact me uh, or any one of uh, my delightful attorneys here at Lois Law Firm. Uh, Other than that, my name is Christian Cisan reminding you guys to defend from day one.